My guest today is Reviews Editor Arthur Gies. My name is Charlie Hall, in for Justin McElroy. You're listening to Polygon's Quality Control. Arthur, um, you know, I, I want to apologize first off. I was out of town for a couple of weeks, as was uh, our regular host, Justin McElroy, and we we managed to skip, to skip over what could be the very best game of this year, and that's Zelda Breath of the Wild. So thanks for taking the time and, and kind of better late than never to come talk about it on Quality Control. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's too bad. It's a, it's a pretty forgettable game but I'll try to remember something about it here and there. <laughs> um, of course, the review of yours went up like two, three weeks ago, I think. So it, it really hasn't been all that long. First question, are you still playing it? No, but I'm also sort of an edge case, I think, for people because I had to roll from that almost directly into a review of Mass Effect Andromeda, which was another extremely long game. So that sort of kicked me off cold turkey from playing Zelda, unfortunately. Yeah, and I skipped right over it because, of course, I don't have a Switch yet, and I'm actually into Mass Effect, and I'm bogging down a bit in Mass Effect, but we can we can refer our listeners to our Mass Effect Andromeda podcast if you want to talk about that or hear about that. What I want to talk about is the way that Zelda Breath of the Wild does not hold the player's hand. That's what I keep hearing all of these critics saying, that it is such an outlier for uh, Nintendo in, in that it really doesn't give a lot of instruction and allows for a lot of free form and, and organic learning of the game itself. Tell me more about your impressions of that. So I think that the reason that you see this hand-holding thing come up over and over again is because over the last, God, decade, or longer, actually, uh, I think that Zelda has developed a reputation for aggressive gating uh, of its systems uh, behind these very extended, very involved, very tedious and tiresome tutorial segments where Nintendo demonstrated absolutely zero faith that you would actually understand how to play it. Uh, and I think that might be baggage from the 90s when the series went, when games in general went from a sort of 2D, either side view or overhead perspective, uh, which Zelda has done in both circumstances. Um, to a, a three-dimensional sort of viewpoint, which it did for the first time with Super Mario Brothers 64, and then later uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Uh, and there's just been this very consistent assumption on the part of Nintendo for almost all of its sort of action games uh, of the last 15 years that no one would know how to play the game until Nintendo taught them how to play the game. And not only that, but that they would need to make extra super sure uh, and basically subject you to secondary education or high school or something to make sure that you knew how to control the camera. Um, <laughs> right. And it became this really tedious thing to crawl through for every Zelda game uh, of the last 15 years with the ex sort of pointed exception of uh, A Link Between Worlds, which was a one of the only direct sequels that Nintendo has ever done to a Zelda game. Uh, and so for its sort of big, big budget flagship Zelda title to 
so cleanly break from that tradition was a big deal. And I think that that tutorial segment has been a real sticking point for a lot of people, myself included. I didn't want to play 10 hours of Zelda before Nintendo let me actually play Zelda. And I think that that's really hurt the Zelda games, arguably, since Ocarina of Time. And I think it was most sort of universally derided in Skyward Sword, which was the uh, 2011 Zelda release on the Wii. And uh, to see them so cleanly walk away from that was incredibly encouraging and very surprising. But is there not an inciting event? Does the game just kind of begin and you're just in the world? Or how does it how does it compel you to do anything? So it's interesting that the conceit of Breath of the Wild is that you wake up not knowing who you are, uh, that you wake up in a world that's unfamiliar. And all of that is is kind of this great way to start the player off in an unfamiliar world. Uh, and a lot of it seems familiar because it's a, it's a Zelda game and there are pieces of Zelda everywhere. Uh, just these sort of archetypes and uh, iconography that people are used to from Zelda games. Those are, those are all around you, but you don't know what's going on and Link doesn't know what's going on. So it drops you in. It tells you how to open chests. It tells you very quickly how to interact with objects but it teaches you through doing, and it also doesn't make you do any of those things immediately. There are these four temples that start you off very quickly with the major abilities that you'll use for the rest of the game. Um, and you don't have to do them right away. Uh, you can just wander around this sort of opening plateau and, and experiment with the world and sort of see what's there and what you can do with it. And... I think that there's an immediate sense of freedom that's been lacking in other Zelda games. And honestly, most open world games uh, don't provide you with that amount of flexibility and sort of lack of shackles, for lack of a better term. I mean, we see that in Bethesda games, generally, that once you start, it just lets you sort of wander off wherever you want to. Uh, but that's sort of frowned upon in an era of very guided AAA experiences. And so for Zelda to do that is another sign that Nintendo has taken smart lessons from a lot of other people that honestly they've ignored uh, until this game. Another thing that's really caught people by surprise are just all of the opportunities for, ugh, I hate the term, but for lack of a better word, emergent gameplay, right? Like there are people doing things that are just unexpected and ridiculous, but also that comply with the game's own internal logic. And they're just, they're surprised that Nintendo has allowed them to do these things and given them these freedoms within the game. So can you talk a little bit about your experience and, and what surprised you about those, those freedoms and, and how the, the NPCs and the objects interacted with each other? I think that it's, it's interesting in that I, I think that, Nintendo made a very specific kind of sacrifice uh, in Breath of the Wild, which is that in previous Zelda games, there was a fairly understood cycle of reward uh, and a big reward where you would go to a dungeon, you would sort of solve its mysteries, you'd get a new item that functioned both as a weapon as, and as a tool of traversal and progress through the rest of the game, and you'd use that to solve the sort of second half of the dungeon. And then you would move on and it would do this seven or eight times per game. And uh, it was this real sense of discovery that, that I think that 
largely defined what a Zelda game meant to people. And that's something that is absolutely not present in Breath of the Wild. Uh, you get almost every key item that you're going to need to to complete the game right away. Um, and stuff like the hookshot and the boomerang are not like these mission critical things that you'll get eventually. They're just... They're, the hookshot's not in the game, and the bow is just something that you get right away, and the boomerang is just a weapon. Um, and so there's this sense of ephemera, I guess, or or fleeting value of objects that's present in Breath of the Wild. And so it was, it's much more important that the world be the sort of thing that continues to yield new insight. And I think in that regard, it's extremely successful. Uh, I think that at its heart, Breath of the Wild is a very simple game. It's a set of very simple, clearly defined systems that are woven together in a sort of evolving way that's very in keeping with the way that Nintendo makes games. It's sort of like the Nintendo philosophy of games that you have several simple systems that are then used to build upon each other into increasingly involved scenarios. And Breath of the Wild is a very elegant sort of exploration of that. And and I think that people are just surprised because unlike a lot of open world games where you frequently butt heads against what you think you should be able to do and what you can do. And you're constantly surprised by all the little things that you can do like quote real life, but also annoyed about the things that you can't do because video game and instead breath of the wild establishes very quickly the rules of its environment and lets people play with that. And there are traditionally designed puzzles and encounters, but it's also a game that seems very acquiescent in allowing people to circumvent its puzzle logic, to circumvent its encounter logic, that there's one or two, quote, right ways to solve puzzles and dungeons, but there are many ways to resolve those scenarios without having to do what the designers hoped for. And and I think that that sense of play and discovery is something that, that compensates for the changes that have been made to Zelda's formula. Hmm. So what you're saying is, what I'm hearing is, you can cheese a temple. You absolutely you can. can. <laughs> but but the, the drama comes really in how many different ways there are to cheese a temple. <laughs> sure. And, and I'll give an example that's not a plot spoiler. It's, a, it's from a temple that's fairly early in the game. Uh, one of the things that I dislike <laughs> about Breath of the Wild is that it occasionally uses gyroscopic controls. Uh, oh. Which is... A f- infuriating holdover from Nintendo's sort of slow death of motion controls. Well, you're talking uh, like like a six axis kind of thing, like tilt yes, through mode. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so it's a sort of ball maze. Like older people might remember these wooden mazes with a steel ball in them, where you would try to guide the ball to the center of the maze by turning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of like that, except it it is this platform that can be moved with gyroscopic controls and it has ramps that lead off of it. That's supposed to lead to another ramp to guide this mystic ball for lack of a better term to, (laughs) to a certain spot. And this ball just falls from this dispenser above the maze and you want to sort of tilt and turn the maze to guide it to this spot. But there's a sort of jump between the maze and the final ramp. That's kind of hard to get across. And so 
there are right ways to do that, but something that both I and uh, Dave Tack, who is handling, who is supervising the guide for Breath of the Wild, discovered pretty quickly is that you can actually flip the the Switch or Wii U gamepad controller over completely, and it flips the maze upside down, and the bottom of it is just a flat plane. And so you can use that flat plane to guide the ball to where you want it. <laughs> But you have to turn your controller completely upside down to do it. So you're like laying on the floor, playing facing the ceiling or something. I mean, who knows? And <laughs> if you're laying on your back playing with, with the Switch in portable mode, who knows how you would get that figured out. But the point is that it's, it's this thing that can be done. And uh, another example is that uh, there are certain puzzles that require electrified objects to be placed in certain spots to power these machines and gain additional access. And there's a certain dungeon that has two of these to open the door and you find one electrified object and you're looking for another and editor, uh, video editor here at Polygon, Nick Robinson discovered that he could place, uh, one, the one electrified object he had found and use weapons, metal weapons to build a bridge to the other spot and just allow power to run to it. <laughs> like like something in a Minecraft almost. Sure. Uh, and the reason that he n- realized that he could do this is because the game teaches you that metal weapons conduct electricity by threatening you with, by being struck by lightning. Uh, and it develops a visual language to show you that metal weapons are conductive. So it, it does a really good job of teaching you the way its world works and letting enough flexibility be in the world and having enough confidence in those systems to let the world work as opposed to having everything be extremely scripted. One thing that I wanted to talk to you in particular about is the game's art style. I really enjoy seeing the the work that you do in your free time. I know you get a background in art. This game is just, it's so pretty. It looks like a cartoon in motion. I haven't seen the whole thing though. Does that art style hold up from beginning to end? I think if anything, it becomes even more coherent that the sort of visual language and and sort of scene direction holds up even better over time. Um, I it's interesting. I think that there's Nintendo has done a fair amount of sort of stylized, sort of cell shaded visual direction with Zelda over the last fifteen years, and so. In some ways, it's it just looks like this very clear culmination of ideas that Nintendo has experimented with over the last three big Zelda games, which would be Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, and Skyward Sword. Um, and you'll probably remember, even if you didn't play it, that Wind Waker had this very cartoonish, cel-shaded look. Uh, the Twilight Princess went back to the sort of more serious... Uh, traditional visual design and that Skyward Sword was very impressionistic and sort of harkened back to a more animated view. And I think that this is cleaner than that. I think that it's it's not quite as high concept, but I think it is better executed. And I think it's the kind of visual design that is sophisticated enough to not seem held back uh, by technical considerations. Uh, I think it, it's the kind of thing that should hold up better over time than a lot of its contemporaries or even its predecessors did. Um, but the use of color is brilliant. Uh, the animation is great. The visual language that it develops is incredibly sophisticated and very effective. And 
I think all of that leads to something that even though it's not the most technologically sophisticated game out there, it's not like it's not running in 1080p. It's not going to run on 4K on a 4K TV. It still looks really good regardless of the device you're playing it on. Of course, based on the, the language in your written review, our Polygon editors elected to give this Zelda game a 10. And it's not something that we regularly do here at Polygon. <laughs> um, so, you know, what can you tell me about the process and the conversation that led to us giving it that rare and unique score? I think that as the rubric, our sort of score rubric says nothing is perfect. And I certainly don't think Breath of the Wild is perfect. Uh, I think that there, that sense of discovery that I was discussing, I think that the sense of reward is diminished um, the sense of what the game gives you is diminished. I think that the way that it handles equipment and the way that things are breakable uh, leaves something to be desired. I think it, that, that it's often frustrating to find something really cool and know that no matter what you do, eventually it's going to break and go away, which is a very existential sort of philosophy to pin on equipment in that game. Uh, but nonetheless, it's frustrating. Um, but it's just so incredibly effective at everything it tries to do and in taking chances. Um, this was a real gamble based on prior Zelda precedent uh, that, that they would make this thing, that they would build a game like this uh, in a way that Nintendo hasn't really done before. And so I think that the combination of the quality of its execution, the quality of its presentation, the mechanical sophistication, the risks that it took, the sense of experimentation that it encourages. It's just something that, for lack of a better term, frequently feels kind of magical in, in its execution. And so um, absent any sort of major glaring flaws, which I, I don't think that the game really has, and it certainly didn't, going by the review, uh, attend made sense. Um, I could see lower scores and I like there are some outlets have given it considerably lower scores. And I think that the complaints that they have are founded. I just personally don't think that those criticisms are as material to the overall quality of the game as the positive things that could be said about it. I, I think that, um, just as a, from a, a process perspective, the thing that was, I'm a little surprised that it got as many scores where it did as it did because of the sort of suboptimal sort of circumstances around its review, which is sort of tied up in the launch, launch of a new console and with very little time to play a game that is incredibly long. Uh, it's certainly the longest Zelda game uh, by a very comfortable margin, and it was a really involved 70-ish hour process to play through the game and then to write the review over the course of about seven days um and that's you know i think that that's a, a challenge to to have to tackle a game that long and that big in that amount of time and not have it have it negatively uh affect the overall sentiment because it becomes a sort of confrontational or adversarial relationship as opposed to one that's strictly critical um, so I'm, I'm honestly a little surprised that it, that it retained the sort of overall critical, uh, accolades that it did. Do you think that that emboldens developers going forward to, 
to keep these games closer to the chest and, and get them out to critics later in the cycle? I mean, I don't, I don't think so because I think as often that strategy has backfired. Um, I think that a case could be made that the timeline that reviewers found themselves on Mass Effect Andromeda uh, did not provide ample opportunity to explore that game or allow it to to make as good an impression as it might have otherwise done. Um, I think that uh, the what is cons- widely considered to be one of the best games that Nintendo, a one of the most well-regarded developers in the history of video games, uh, I, I don't think that you want to use that as the thing that says you can get away with doing something suboptimal because it's Nintendo and it's a Zelda game. Um, I think that uh i i think that there's a good chance that developers who are in the process of making their open world games will take a look at what breath of the wild is doing and the critical and fan reception to it has been and use it as a moment to reflect and consider what their games are doing and maybe to make some substantive changes as to their own games and i think we've seen games do that before i think that there was a lot of speculation as an example that uh, Grand Theft Auto V and the reception to that caused a delay in Ubisoft's Watch Dogs uh, because they realized that what they had did not compare favorably to what Rockstar had done in a game that on a surface level looked very similar. So I think that, especially with the game hitting as early in the year as it did, that it's going to be a conversation point for quite some time and that it it would be difficult and foolish for developers not to look at the way that people are talking about this game and sort of act accordingly. Fascinating. Well, I, it, it definitely makes it a must play game for me, uh, given the role that I've got in the industry. And I really appreciate you taking the time to take me and our listeners inside the review process. I really appreciate it, Arthur. And thanks to you at home for listening today. We've got a lot more on polygon.com, including details on Spider-Man homecoming and an investigation into the recently leaked Half-Life 2 maps. Until we've got another game to talk about, this is Charlie Hall for Arthur Gies. Thank you for listening to Polygons. Quality control. 